Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. You just said Benjamin? Have you, why don't you introduce yourself this way? I'm Benjamin. Ben. Benny Goodman, that's me, and I think you're sexy. That's right. You are sexy. Look at those eyes. Meow sexy. Don't shy away from it. I know that's how you do it. I know. It's, uh, I love to see my own name used in popular culture. Right before this, I was watching uh, the Hassan react to himself on the Ben Shapiro show. Right. And uh, here I'm seeing a movie starring a Benjamin or Ben. Uh, yeah, most of these Benjamins are going by Ben. They have this thing. It's called Ben. It's a shortened <laughs> version of Benjamin, and uh, that's my name. Enough about that. What's your name? My co-host, uh, that is, of course, Joey. Hey, how's it going? And uh, today, in case you haven't, uh, unless, in case we haven't clued you in yet, uh, with that little audio clip from the movie, today we're discussing leaving Las Vegas. Ben, we're gonna let you go, okay? Okay. This is too generous, Bill. Well, Ben, we really liked having you around. But you know how it is. I'm sorry. Well, what are you going to do now? Um, I thought, uh, I thought I'd move out to Las Vegas. This is an American drama. Directed by Mike Figgis. The cast includes Ghost Rider and Madeline Stilwell. I watched this movie on Pluto TV, which I've never watched anything on before, but it was absolutely free. So that's how I watched it. How did you watch it, Joey? I also watched it on Pluto TV. Did you have ads? One ad squeaked through my ad blocker, but a quick refresh took care of that. Dang. I have ad blocker on my Chrome, and it still didn't, it still went through. I watched the same ad over and over and over again, oh, like no. every ten minutes or something. It what? was crazy. Yeah, it was. I don't know if you got the same one. It was, it was uh, the one with like the seance. I'm not going to say the company. No, no. I mean, the ad I got. I I have pretty good reflexes for this. I was like, whoa, not an ad, and not I an immediately ad. jumped into action and, and hit refresh, and I got rid of it. But and it was like halfway through when I got it. I thought there was oh, only really? one ad. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it was okay. I it did kind of break up the movie more than I like would have liked. Right. But right. um, it was bearable. It was only one ad. It was like fifteen or thirty seconds. So, but, but when I was getting the audio for this movie, it wouldn't let me scrub to different portions of the of the movie. I would have to scrub. I would try to scrub to the end of the movie, and it would play the next ad cycle. And so uh, I would have to scrub again another 10, it would go another 10 minutes jumping ahead. It was excruciating. And it wasn't just one ad this time. It would show me three or four or five in a row. Um, wow. So I'm going to write them a ticket because uh, they have like a support page and say, hey, this is really dumb. You should let me 
watch certain parts of the movie. Uh, I, like I was, I I'm just gonna say, like I'm not gonna say, oh, I stole this audio from my podcast. I'm gonna say, <laughs> um, I wanted to watch this specific scene on your platform, and it was impossible. It took me ten minutes to get to it. I should be, I'm okay with watching an ad, absolutely, but don't make me watch ten. So fair whatever. enough. I guess that's fair enough. I, to I'm sorry you had to go through that because um, on my end it was absolutely free, free, absolutely free. free. Yeah, so um, so Pluto TV, that's an option, or you can rent this from other places for like three bucks. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started with our synopsis for this movie written by our very own Joey, and I'll get us started. Ben Sanderson has lost everything. His wife left him, he's addicted to alcohol, and he was just fired from his one successful job in LA. He throws away or burns all his possessions and moves to Las Vegas to drink himself to death. On his first night, he meets a prostitute named Sarah. He hires her and takes her back to his motel, where, instead of having sex, he explains his suicide plan. Sarah's pimp, Yuri, gets taken out by rival gangsters, which leaves Sarah free to do whatever she wants. She finds Ben again, and Ben takes her out for dinner. Sarah convinces Ben to move in with her, and the two begin a strange and tenuous relationship. The only conditions are that Sarah cannot stop Ben from drinking, and Ben cannot pass judgment on Sarah's work. The two start off very happy, buying each other gifts and spending quiet time together. However, Sarah's job wears on Ben, and he has trouble processing it. Sarah suggests Ben see a doctor. You know, because he is literally poisoning himself, he refuses outright. Ben somehow brings home another prostitute, and Sarah forces him out. That night, she is picked up by some college-age boys in football jerseys who beat her up and gang rape her. After getting evicted from her home, Sarah gets a call from Ben, who is hours from death. During Ben's death throes, he and Sarah finally have sex. Soon after Ben dies in the last scene... Sarah reflects on their relationship, ending by telling her therapist she loved Ben. The end. There you have it, the synopsis for Leaving Las Vegas. Let's begin our analysis with the pros and the cons. Joey, what did you like about Leaving Las Vegas? A absolutely breathtaking performance from our, both of our leads. Uh, a simple but very tragic story. An interesting view of Las Vegas, which I want to explore in more depth later. Um, it does a whole lot with very little, uh, this whole movie does. And it's an accurate depiction of alcoholism. Um, and it, despite it, like the whole conceit and idea of this movie, it's not as depressing as you might think it would be. What about you? I agree with all of that, especially the last thing you said. Not as depressing as you might think, because even just conceptually if you think about what this movie was about it's like that sounds really really sad but i didn't feel like that depressed after watching it um despite how sad it, it still is but i echo your praise of our lead performers nick cage and elizabeth shoe are fantastic a truly this movie is just the two of them and they really carry that the i really liked the music in this movie and the stylized sequences throughout the film this film really has a distinct feel to it and it has this depressing desolate aura that emanates 
throughout the film, um, which I thought was really unique, something that I don't think any other movies made me feel quite uh, the same, uh, mm. which I really appreciated. So what about the cons? What did you not like about leaving Las Vegas? There are just kind of dropped plot threads, like with uh, Sarah's pimp, Yuri. He just sort of disappears from the story altogether and never <laughs> yeah. to return. Um, <laughs> and there are setups that seem to just go nowhere. Um, I feel like it could have used more characters, actually. And there was also this low picture clarity that was going on, which was, I read, a stylistic choice, but one that I don't feel like... Uh, support i don't really support that much i don't feel like it lends itself to telling the story better in my opinion i think you're definitely entitled to that opinion i think i i'm i enjoyed the low picture clarity for what it was again i think that goes along with more of what i just feel this movie has such a distinct style to it um i think i didn't have a lot to criticize of this film but one thing i would have liked to see was more vegas debauchery from ben (laughs) he's in vegas to drink himself to death and he succeeds in that and he does that but i would have liked to see him cause a little more mayhem or or get into a little bit more chaos that can only happen in las vegas uh the, the the reason we wanted to watch this movie was because the two of us went to las vegas and we wanted to watch a vegas type movie and while this movie even has like las vegas in the name um there is a lot of things that, again, it's still very much a Las Vegas movie. I'm not saying it isn't, but I feel like it, I, it left me wanting more Vegas out of it, if yeah. that makes any sense. Uh, so those are our pros and our cons. Let's go ahead and jump into the overall section. Joey, take it away. Um, the thing that I admire most about leaving Las Vegas is how it uses the language of film so completely. The story isn't just told competently. It uses perspective, blocking, establishing shots, and even jump cuts to more completely immerse you in its tale. Despite its chaotic characters and setting, the movie is very carefully pieced together, weaving the tapestry of a complicated and completely unique relationship right before your eyes. I think the medium of film has largely been eclipsed by television in its ability to show nuance, but leaving Las Vegas does a really commendable job of showing you something that is very difficult to explain. What I mean is that the characters of Ben and Sarah are more than just the sum of their parts. They each have catastrophic problems, and together, their problems compound, forming new and even more daunting problems. As the relationship develops, their understanding and desperate need for acceptance turns to frustration and anxiety. And the movie doesn't tell you exactly why. It shows you everything you need to draw your own conclusion. And although it resolves itself very powerfully for me personally, I think others will come away with completely different messages, meanings, and personal touches. Again, this is what film is for, to give you another perspective, to show you something new, and ask you to reflect on how it might really be about you. This movie challenges you to stick with it and to fill in the gaps. The experience left me not with questions about what happened or what will happen next, but with questions for myself. How am I engaging in self-destructive behavior? What am I overlooking in my relationships? And what really is love? Wow, that's really (laughs) insightful. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I totally agree. Like This is a great example of taking the medium and doing the most that you can with it yes uh which is uh, fantastic um i mean that's the what i hope for when we sit down to talk about one of these movies and what really affected me about this movie i think is 
the general vibe of the movie. It's so hopeless and so grimy. It really felt like existential dread. And I think a lot of this movie for me, I mean, I like I have such a Ben centric view of existence, <laughs> but I I really focused in on Ben through a lot of this movie. Uh, I thought he was a really interesting character because his life is so hopeless from the beginning, from the outset of this film. He's already given up before we even get involved. There is no hope for redemption. There is no hope for him to come to his senses. It's over for him. And we're just here to witness him burning out. And this is unlike anything I'm used to when it comes to movies, even movies that are sad. Because most of the time I'm tempted to believe that the protagonist at least has a chance to turn it around, but Ben never wants to. He's good at self-destruction. And that's a really unique thing to watch. Uh, absolutely. I think that's so interesting. I think that plays into why this film is satisfying to watch is because he ultimately succeeds in his mission, even though it's not something any of us may be able to relate to. Um, he sets out to do something and it ends up happening. Um, and although like you're, I'm definitely sad about it. I, it's also like, okay, I understand how we got here. I don't feel tricked. Like, I don't feel like the rug was pulled out from under me, you know? This makes sense from what I've seen before. And yeah, there was little little glimpses, little glimpses where I was like, maybe Sarah will be able to turn around. Maybe Sarah will be able to, you know, convince them otherwise. But at every chance that happens, it's immediately undercut. So you never really get that that little bit of hope. It never builds up to a point where you think he might change his mind. Even in the happy moments in the movie, you're still like, well... What is really happening here? Because really, there's been no progress as far as whether Ben's going to change his mind or not. Um, and ultimately, that you're left with that. Um, and I think that does a lot for your viewing experience. I think it leaves you less frustrated and more reflective. To- I totally agree. I never felt like they were trying to pull me in some weird direction or fool me into thinking there was hope for right. Ben. And Nicolas Cage is spectacular as Ben. This role was meant for him, or he was meant for this role. He's a weird guy, okay? I think we all know this about Nicolas Cage. Whether you've seen him in, uh, what's the, Ghost Rider or National Treasure. You know Nick Cage is a little bit... Those are not his weirdest movies, either. It's true, and I actually, like, what's the one with the bees? The Wicker Man. The Wicker Man, yeah. I think there's a lot of better examples. I haven't seen them all, but I still know Ben Cage, uh, Ben Cage, Nicholas Cage is a weird guy. And I think that fits really well for who Ben Sanderson is in this film. And there are times where he's almost funny or he's almost charming while he's drunk, but Nicholas Cage is able to put on a performance that carries this feeling of desolation through it. Ben knows he doesn't have much time left, and he's going to spend that time doing what he loves to do, or at least what he loves to do at this point, which is drinking and generally not giving a shit. (laughs) And I'll give you a great, I think, an example. So when Ben is in one of the Vegas bars getting an early morning drink, (laughs) going out for his morning, being the only guy at the bar, basically. He he tried to go to the grocery store, but it was closed. So (laughs) he's like, well, let's go to the bar instead. (laughs) Yeah, and he encounters a couple that are having a spat, a loud spat, 
and he just cruises into the conversation without any motives at all. Okay. He has a somewhat witty exchange with the woman uh, that is like fighting in this in the spat about leaning into the bar, right? And he's kind of smooth with it. It's clear he's been around the bar. <laughs> yes. To, to have this kind of, you know, back and forth. And it leads her to flirting with him. And her motive is obviously to make her boyfriend jealous. But does Ben really want to make her to, to sleep with her? Or do you have any uh, plans with this woman? Not really. We've, sh- we've seen at this point that Ben really isn't that motivated by sex anyways. So he doesn't really care, but he's just there. You know, he's just chatting. And then when the boyfriend gets in his face, does Ben show even a modicum of self-preservation? Certainly not. <laughs> he's just vibing without a care in the world outside of where he's going to get his next drink. After watching this movie, the thought of an alcoholic drink makes me want to vomit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This movie really captures the wretched disease that is alcoholism. There's so many scenes in this film that taken out of context, you could see Ben as a really radical, fun guy. Dancing down the aisle as he's picking out his drinks at the liquor store. Double fisting vodka handles in the shower. Desperately mixing a screwdriver in the fridge as he feels the hangover setting in. If I didn't know any better, I'd say Ben Sanderson is a really cool party dude. (laughs) But I do know better. And this movie really makes these things look like a tragic way to poison yourself. Oh my gosh, yes. And I think we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit more later, but like, this is probably one of the worst ways to die, honestly. Um, it does not look pretty, even like dressed up in this kind of almost fantasy world that like you're kind of floating through th- with Ben. It looks painful as hell. Um, yeah, but there's, I mean, there's a lot going on with this movie, a lot to talk about. I kind of want to focus on Ben first. So for me, he is not really looking for anything. He is hoping to find a repl- he's not hoping to find a replacement for his wife or even comfort or sex. He's just trying to die in an ironic and very painful way. Sarah to him is a nice surprise, but she is not enough to shake him from this path. Eventually she does come to embody something more. She represents something worth living for even. But Ben is beyond saving at that point. He's completely unable to act on any conviction and is instead forced to let his previous actions carry him all the way to his death. To me, these two characters are not really equal, Sarah and Ben, even though the movie posits they are. What do you think? Oh, yeah, totally. I feel like Ben, while he does say that he loves Sarah and clearly enjoys the companionship with her, she never reaches any sort of level uh, close to his own interests or interest, which is to drink himself to death. Right. Like it never even comes close to uh, changing his mind. No. Uh, so I wouldn't even say necessarily that makes him superior to her or something, but I'd, I wouldn't say that they're equal. Well, that's the thing, I think. Like the movie kind of says, oh, there's these two people that are both in these desperate dire straits you might say and they've come together at the same time to be like what the other person needs but that's not really that's not really what happens because neither of them can change the other and their problems are not equal you know ben is about to die and sarah is 
just surviving. She's trying to live, you know, and she's in a way she's trying to escape, really. She's yeah, yeah. And I think that's an important distinction. She's trying. Sarah wants to have a better life. She even talks about at the beginning how she kind of thinks she has a good life or she's trying to put a positive spin on what her life is versus Ben, whose life is essentially over before the movie begins. Right. So I really think it's interesting that you focus so much on Ben because I honestly think this movie is really about Sarah. I think that this is really Elizabeth Shue's movie and they just put Nicolas Cage at top billing so that people would go see it. I think it's like this movie is so much about her and how she sees the world, at least to me. I think uh, she's obviously trying to take advantage. She's obviously taking advantage of Ben. Um, and I would go so far as to say she's projecting human qualities onto someone who is no longer human. She sees him as attentive and passionate and caring, but he's none of those things. Whatever person he once was, now he is just an echo of that person. He's basically only impulses. Uh, he's easily controlled and completely completely oblivious to whatever's happening around him. Sarah so desperately wants to be loved, so wishes that she had someone who cared about her, that she projects those qualities onto the first person who treats her like a human being. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that sets Ben apart in Sarah's eyes is that he just doesn't want to have sex with her. Yeah, I know. Her, her <laughs> Which li- her, is so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Again, I mean, that's her existence, especially with men, is right. that they pay money to have sex with her. And then the other ma- man in her life is the one who makes sure that she, I guess, gives him money. And if, allegedly, I think, for protection. But that, that that's still related to her trade as a prostitute. Yeah, and he still demands sex from her. So, it, like, the first person who doesn't do that, she suddenly becomes attached to, right? And, um, like, I, again, I think that he's just kind of there. You, like you said, he's just vibing. He's sort of just uh, <laughs> a- agreeing and yes-anding whatever's happening, right? <laughs> and so she's like, oh, yes, like, you know, we can do this uh, together or something. It reminds me of that Shel Silverstein poem. Oh, man, I just thought of this. Uh, what was it called? Like the turtles didn't say no or something. It's kind of long, but I'll, I will, um, I'll read you the first part. You get the idea of it. Um, it's called The Bagpipe Who Didn't Say No by Shel Silverstein. It was nine o'clock at midnight at a quarter after three when a turtle met a bagpipe on the shore side by the sea. And the turtle said, my dearie, may I sit with you? I'm weary. And the bagpipe didn't say no. Said the, bag, said the turtle to the bagpipe, I have walked this lonely shore. I have talked to waves and petals, but I've never loved before. Will you marry me today, dear? It is, is it no you're going to say, dear? And the bagpipe didn't say no. And it goes on and on and on. And eventually the turtle realizes that the bagpipe doesn't love him because the bagpipe doesn't say no when he asks. So it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's the same thing happening here. Sarah is <laughs> saying, hey, like, you're this thing, right? And Ben's like, uh-huh, yeah, I guess. And then... Uh, she's like, oh, this is exactly what I've always been looking for. This is exactly the thing I've always wanted. That um, is an amazing <laughs> parallel to draw. <laughs> that is fantastic. But no, I, I totally agree. I wasn't sure. I think this movie does an okay job of trying to get you to uh, root for the relationship or at least um, think of it as endearing for sure. whatever it is. But I thought 
for a second that it was trying to make a mockery of the relationship when she gives him the gifts and yes. one of them is a flask and ben is like wow you get me <laughs> you're literally an alcoholic like this is so sad that this is a gift and no, also that was, it's so i love that not it's so not a different it's like no she doesn't get you this is the most obvious thing about you <laughs> i think no what what that signaled to me was that she was not going to stop him right clearly this is clearly if she loved him then he then she wants him to keep living right but if she loves him then she will let him destroy himself right and so she gives him the flask as like hey this is a useful thing also this is a symbol that I am not going to stop you from doing this. I am encouraging it, right? I'm enabling it. And the same thing is true for the earrings, right? He gives her the earrings and says to her something like, you know, maybe uh, the next person that uh, like you have sex with will like, maybe they'll, be, they'll press you against the pillow or something like that. And it's the same thing. He's like, he has the same expression on his face that Sarah does when he opens the flask, right? She's like, wow, this is a nice gift. But also it's like, and enabling of their current circumstance showing that neither of them are really actually willing to try to change the other they're really just trying to use the other one in the moment that they're currently in um it's both like oh you like both like oh you are accepting me and also like wow i can't believe you would accept me you know what i mean right right yeah Oh, I don't know. I just, yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. That's exactly what it was going for. But I just felt like it was so right. It's like, oh, it's so easy to like to make him give, give him something he wants. Yeah, <laughs> it was easily giving him like a bottle of Jack Daniels or something. He'd be like, oh man, exactly what? I, yeah. How did you know? <laughs> I love this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So I think that the scene that really solidifies this feelings in relationship, the the idea of this relationship for me, is the ending. Ben is literally convulsing moments from his death, uh, and Sarah has sex with him, pretending that his literal death throes are signs that he loves her. For Ben, he knows she's there, but he is clearly not really there. He's staring death in the face, and he continues to drink despite it all. In the end, he wasn't alone, but I mean, what good is that if it didn't save him? Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't think it's ever clearer the way that he feels about their relationship than when he reaches for his bottle. Yeah. It's so... And I love... I, I, um, I, I don't know if it means anything, but I thought it was interesting the way that they position the camera uh, for that scene. Um, because after... I forget exactly what she says, but she's expressing her love to Ben. And he looks almost directly into the camera to be like, oh, like, wow. You know? And... <laughs> and right. Again, that's like a classic. It would be funny if it was anybody else, but it's Nick Cage, so it's just it comes across as weird and spectacular. <laughs> but um, it's clear that it's not like this mutual love thing uh, that that feels completely authentic. Maybe it's going one direction, but Ben is he's off in some other world. Yeah, no, he's not even a person at this point. You know, he's just like like a collection of impulses. It's uh, it's very interesting, I think, and. It's really hard to pull something like that off, I think. I think Nick Cage does a wonderful job. But I honestly feel like Elizabeth Shue outshines him in some moments just because she's like a real character with like a real person and displays like real emotions, you know? He's just kind of like a goofy reflection of a human being where she's like a real one. Yeah. 
It's uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I definitely agree with that, but I also feel like being able to pull off this like booze fueled odyssey to towards your own death in the way that he did is what's really impressive to me because again, like anybody else, it's like either first you're, it's either it's funny or you make it look so fun that people would want to do it. Or you look like you're Crystalia and it's just not believable at all. It's like this guy's <laughs> obviously not drunk. Right. And uh, this is just bad acting. So um, I think there's a lot to appreciate there from both. Definitely. I have a question for you, which is how American is this story? And here's my pitch, okay? Okay. So we've talked a few times before. We talked about this a few times on the podcast. There's this is a story that's only possible in a country that is so concerned with individualism. There are no other real characters in this movie. I think that this movie could have benefited from a reflection of um, Sarah and Ben, where there's two desperate people who find each other and end up growing and changing each other. And then you have these two like maybe that happens in the background somewhere. You know, you meet a couple of people at the bar or something and they are in a similar situation, but they, at the end of the movie, they come out on top better. Whereas these people just end up spiraling together. Um, that would have been an interesting reflection, but maybe you don't need that. Cause I think this movie is also sort of a response to all rom-coms in a way. Yes. Like it's very much like, oh, let's bring these two people together and see if it happens. Like actually it's worse for both of them. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's an interesting idea to think about. And that's why we have these conversations. But I think this movie does benefit largely from not having a happy anything. <laughs> right. Um so but because of because I don't have any of that, there's no other characters. Everyone else is flat or just a utility. But everyone else is either hostile to them or wants to avoid Ben and Sarah. They have no friends, they have no family, they have no connections or community or places to turn. They're completely alone. The utter contempt shown to our two protagonists by the other characters is really tragic, but also feels like uniquely American. With our high-minded morals allowing us to completely reject the desperate and sick, even when they are in freaking Las Vegas, Sin City. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can still judge you, uh, even though I'm gambling in 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 uh, las vegas you know i can even though i'm like involving myself in debauchery you're still worse than me you know and i think you know uh, i have the moral high ground for that so what do you think do do you think that uh lends itself to kind of an american totally oh so very and i i'm glad you use the word individualism because this isn't inherently like this this movie does not really have a commentary on capitalism, even though you could tweak this film to be sure. about capitalism, right? It could be, it's like, sorry, like, you got to have sex with all these men so I can make money, you know? Right, and then, right. like, and then uh, Ben comes to Las Vegas and he's like, my life is awful. Like, I'm such a loser, but like, I'm going to gamble it all on roulette. And then he becomes rich. And then he's like, he's the king of Las Vegas. We love <laughs> Ben Sanderson. And he yes. has, like, he's high rolling, but then he loses it all. And they're like, you're scum, Ben Sanderson. Like, you're nothing <laughs> without money, you know? And like, you could, it's like, oh man, like, capitalism really is like dehumanizing or something but that's not what this (laughs) movie is at all even though america is a very hyper capitalist place you can take a more nuanced approach and talk about more of just the culture and this culture of individualism shines through uh in the way that these uh these characters live their lives i mean especially ben because there's nobody there to catch him when he falls he's he's divorced 
he has a son somewhere, I think, unless he, him and his wife just took a photo with a kid and <laughs> he just had that. It's very heavily implied that that's his flesh and blood. And um, But nobody cares that he's going to go actively destroy himself. No. There's no one trying to stop it or even really that upset that it's happening. And that would, I mean, certainly we would see some sort of resistance if he was part of a community or some other collective that tried to care for each other uh, but instead he lives here where you got to take care of yourself look out for numero uno and uh, that's all that matters yeah well think about do the right thing right and the, the character of the mayor a perpetual drunk he's constantly in the street you know making a mess of things but they uh you know, people take care of him. They, they, isn't there a scene where he, well, he saves a kid, right? But yes. he's, you know, people, some people like him, some people don't like him, but he's definitely a member of that community and he would be missed if he was gone. Um, and like, he's, he's not you know, actively trying to kill himself, but he's definitely like kind of a drain, you could say. Like, he's not being a productive member of the, of the community necessarily, but he's still a part of it and would still be. Again, I'd still be missed if he was gone. That's not true for Nicolas Cage. You know, he lives in a house by himself. He's going to drive all the way there in his own car and ha- gets a hotel room by himself. There's nobody else there he, uh, to care for him. He's literally just a number on a page, you know? Then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he dies or not, if he dies in this horrific way, because whatever, people die every day. And it's his goddamn right to, uh, That's right to die the way he wants to, so... And that's where the truly most American part of it is his freedom to that's right to die in a totally avoidable way. <laughs> Very true. So the other thing that's really interesting, I think, about this movie is the setting of Las Vegas. Um, it's kind of a strange setting, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Vegas is an extremely superficial city. That was something that I took away from our uh our time in vegas too everything is dressed up and even the buildings are trying to pretend to be something that they're not uh there is there is dirty human life in vegas but it's hidden behind desire people see what they want to see and believe what they want to believe just as our two characters see the other as just what they need quote unquote vegas provides the perfect setting of the quote unquote pleasure city or endless fun both Ben and Sarah are kicked out of almost every establishment they enter. The way that Vegas maintains its facade of perfect, you know, fun is by removing real life from the visible spectrum. Send away the desperate hooker. Kick out the violent drunk. Keep up appearances that everything is going great. Yeah, I, I think that is why it, it's, it is such a good setting for this movie because it's the opposite of what you'd expect. Again, yeah. like I was sitting there hoping for a little bit more Vegas debauchery, but there's not a lot of real debauchery going on with these two. It's so depressing and sad, which is the opposite of what you think in Las Vegas. Right. And it seems like, yeah, again, like I think Ben is there to sort of enjoy his last moments in a way, but also to tragically hurt himself. And I feel like Vegas sort of hits at that too, because it's, again, it's like you can do something right now that would be very like, you know, might be satisfying or like very you know, gratifying, instant gratification, but like immediately after you're going to have regrets. Um, and that's, that's true for, uh, for Ben's like path too, where it's like, yeah, drinking is uh, fun, right? Uh, well, for all the drugs, you know, if you're going to pick a drug to die on, alcohol is probably one of the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah, it looked his, like the, the shakes that he got oh when my he God. wasn't drunk looked unbearable. 
Oh my gosh, that was that was so hard to watch. Uh, uh, incredible stuff. Got one more thing I want to touch on this in this section, which is uh, this quote that um, Elizabeth Shue's character Sarah says at the end of the movie. I think the thing is, we both realized that we didn't have that much time, and I accepted him who he was and I didn't expect him to change and I think he felt that for me too I liked his drama and he needed me I loved him um so what do you think do you think this was love um i don't want to pigeonhole myself into trying to find some sort of concrete definition for love i think one of the best things about love is that it's kind of indefinable okay but listening to her say this the thoughts went through my head is that nah that's what you thought he (laughs) was never really here right for him to accept you is not the same thing as him to just be floating in your presence. So I think she's projecting. I think she's projecting too. But I, I think what you said at the beginning is also like a, a important point to note is like, is it possible for you to fall in love with someone like in this short amount of time, knowing so little really about them, you know? And like, I think the traditional like romantic idea of love says yes absolutely that's something that's possible and maybe that's what she's trying to engage in here but of course dirty reality is a huge part of this movie and gets in the way of that actually happening in this movie and in real life so it's it's interesting because i think she's again trying to tap into something that she hasn't earned yet you know she's trying to get she's trying to get the thing that she wants and is putting that on ben and her circumstances um without it ever actually coming true Uh, right like i I think about uh my own uh you know machinations of what love is or was when i was younger and first having strong feelings for the women in my the uh, the women in my life and i also think back on that sometimes and i'm like cringe dude what do you you don't you didn't know what love was and if we think Maybe somewhere down the line, if Sarah's life goes on some sort of upward trajectory for a, a you know, meaningful amount of time, she could become, I don't know, a real estate agent and she meets a nice guy who uh, you know loves her and takes care of her and they have like a mutual thing going on. And then she's like, oh, that wasn't love before. That was just some drunk guy who lived at my house. <laughs> No, that's a good point. I, and that's something that I've, like, I've experienced and I feel like I've heard people express is that they previously thought, hey, this is what love is, and then experienced something that was greater and more powerful um, and discovered that that was really what it was. So maybe it's just like a matter of degree and whatever that most powerful attachment or feeling is, is really what you call love. Well, you have to think about where Sarah's coming from. 
Her yes. life is has been, she's had a tortured existence to this point. And yes. like we were saying earlier, like th- this guy, the thing that sets him far apart, <laughs> the thing that makes him different know, than every other guy. This man built different is that he doesn't want to have sex with her. Yes. So I do think that this is her kind of reaching. I think so too. Okay. You want to move on to our cool Easter eggs? Yes, it's time for cool Easter eggs. And I, I've just got one. Okay. Um, I, I was a little bit... Yeah, I'm not much of a jewelry guy. Uh, I do wear a watch, but it is a Casio. Oh. Uh, yeah, so it's you know right up there at the uh, $15 mark. I think at a pawn shop, it may draw closer to 15 cents, but... It's not a Timex? It's not, it's not a Timex... John McClane. Timex watch in a digital age. <laughs> check out our series on Die Hard. We've, we've reviewed every Die Hard movie, by the way, so check that out. But I was, uh, didn't really catch the reference when Ben takes his 93 Rolex Daytona to the pawn shop. So he goes there to get drinking money, uh, and he pawns it for $500. And it's kind of, uh, it's obviously intended, I think the meaning still got across to me that this was not enough money for the 93 Rolex Daytona because he's drunk and he's like, $500, I'll take it, you know? And then like, <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's very emphasized that he's making a very drunk, careless decision here. But apparently, 93 Rolex Daytonas usually start at a minimum $20,000 used. Oh, my gosh. So he was really not getting his money's worth <laughs> for this, uh, which, of wow. course, why would he care, right? He's, yeah. he's so close to death at this point. That's insane. I can't imagine paying that much for a watch, but also, like... Yeah, if you're, oh, I mean, if you're shopping for a Rolex, you're, like, in a different stratosphere of yeah. wealth. That's so ridiculous. Okay, I got all sorts of stuff to talk about in this movie. So, first of all, you may be uh, interested to know. I don't, I don't know if this is something that interests you or maybe one of our listeners, but um, prostitution is illegal in Las Vegas. What? Uh, but they gave me cr- uh, training cards. They gave me stripper. <laughs> they gave me prostitute training cards. That's right. You can trade with all your friends. Collect them all. <laughs> um, so it's confusing. The law is always confusing. But there's like there's this common misconception that prostitution is legal in Vegas. But there's some rule. I think it's in Nevada that if your town has more than seven hundred thousand people, brothels are illegal. So there are surrounding areas that are that are it is legal, which has a smaller population. But according to the website I found, which is called Benjamin uh, A Dig. Uh, BenjaminNADig.com. So uh, another Benjamin here. Wow. Uh, he, he's some sort of lawyer, it looks like. Uh, he, uh, uh, he says that um, because Clark County, where Vegas, Las Vegas is located, has a population exceeding 700,000, this means that prostitution is legal, illegal in Las Vegas and the surrounding areas, which is pretty vague as far as where is that exactly? Where is the line? But maybe it's just Clark County in general. You have to go outside the county. But, uh, you know, just an interesting little tidbit. So wait, that's the law firm is telling us that? Or they're saying 
did your law f- did your get brothel get shut down? Like you have rights to call <laughs> Benjamin a law firm, and and we'll get you your brothel running again. I think this is really to protect people who come from out of state, uh, try like who are interested in re- in have in hiring a prostitute while they're in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, it's just to uh, protect people that are about to make a dumb mistake. Basically, did uh, you did you make a dumb mistake in Vegas? While you were uh, hiring a prostitute, well, we'll get you off. Yes. Well, <laughs> uh, it's too easy. Okay, so I found this list of interesting facts about leaving Las Vegas on mentalphilos.com. The name of the article is 15 Life-Affirming Facts About Leaving Las Vegas, which I think is wow clever. Um, the, very, the first one... Uh, which I saw over all over the place was that John O'Brien, the person who wrote the screenplay and the novel that this book is based on, committed suicide bef- uh, after he wrote the novel and after he sold the film, but before this film was made. Uh, so in between. And actually, um, uh, there was a couple of interesting little quotes, a little like tidbits. Um, Cage had his long interview with Roger Ebert, which we will read excerpts from later, uh, but. Uh, Cage found out during production that he owned the same watch um, that uh, John O'Brien did and drove the same car as John O'Brien in, in the movie. Uh, so the, the book was, uh, was uh, the, the book uh, Leaving Las Vegas, hit John O'Brien's father described it as John's suicide note. And, that, and it was really semi-autobiographical. Uh, it was based, not based on true events, but he was clearly going through something similar that uh, Ben Sanderson was um, and wrote it down uh, in paper. Um, uh, this other thing that was really interesting was that the movie was shot in 16 millimeter instead of 35 millimeter. I mentioned that at the beginning as a style choice that I didn't really necessarily like. But there's this interesting quote from that uh, interview between Roger Ebert and Nicolas Cage, which I will have Benjamin read right now. Well, it was shot in 16 millimeter instead of 35 which would be more expensive. I find 16 exciting because it gives the film a pastel look. It's in muted colors, like a painting. Film has lost something in the translation to high tech. It's become so super real. It's with digital this and stereo that, and everything's like a CD. It's becoming colder. You get a crystal, pristine feel in new films, while in the old black and white movies, There was a separation between the audience and the film, and you could sort of dream upon that. It was like a painting. Leaving Las Vegas is in color, but the 16 gives it something of that same quality. So what do you think about that? I think it's really interesting. Um, I think that this movie may have, would have benefited from more of a stark reality. You know, there are some like floating things going on, but... One of there is the scenes of hallucination or things that kind of imagined are very subtle, right? Even though hallucinations are a major part of alcohol addiction, apparently. Um, so I felt like that decision meant that they were trying to root it more in reality, even though there were a little bit of fantastical elements to it. And I think that a stark camera, you know, uh, uh, something where it's not floaty or anything, it's just kind of it's more still and it's uh, showing the detail of the situation would have lent itself better to showing, even though these people believe they live in a fantasy, they are still in reality. 
What do you think? I think that the low quality 16 millimeter feel adds to the total aesthetic and feel of this movie. When I watched, I one of the first things I did while I was watching the movie was check to see when it was made. Yeah. Because I was like, this movie looks old, <laughs> but it's not that. I mean, it's from 1995, so it's pretty old, but it's no older than me. Yeah. And uh, it looks much older than that because of the stylistic choice. And something that I feel about like that reality aspect of it is that in 16 millimeter, it doesn't feel like the entire visible spectrum is there necessarily. And I also feel like this movie doesn't give you the full uh, spectrum of possibilities. It's like things are grimy. Things are (laughs) desolate. Things are sad. And that's the only thing. That's the only option you have. And I think that that kind of like closed in restricted kind of feel all comes together with the theme of this movie. So I liked it as a stylistic choice. Yeah, I think that's a really strong argument as well. So I think we'll just have to agree to disagree on this. Sure. Thing. No, and I and I think this is a very like easy thing to have your own opinion on. And it's basically like I like it or I don't like it. Almost yeah. like a smell or an abstract painting. You know, right. I'm not gonna win you over with my argument because my argument is rooted in uh, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, one other thing I want to share from this uh, Muttofloss article is uh, liquor companies didn't want to be associated with the film. Um, for obvious reasons, bottle labels had to be changed or reversed. Figus teased that one very famous beer company offered us free booze not to put their label in the film. So they could have gotten free uh, alcohol if they uh, said, we won't use your bottle, <laughs> which is hysterical. <laughs> Um, so one of the other things is that's really interesting about this movie is Nicolas Cage's portrayal of alcohol withdrawal and alcohol addiction. So I went on a little bit of some research to find out if any of this is true. And I have a quote from, uh, Nicolas Cage, uh, in his interview with Roger Ebert, uh, talking about this, but I have a couple of things I found on Cura, you know, you know what Cura is? It's like a yahoo answers type thing people yeah. ask questions and then anyone can respond to them yeah they're they're interesting gauges for the public and i found a couple of them that i found were that i thought were especially funny so let me uh, let me read this one for you is leaving las vegas an al- accurate portrayal of alcoholism um, and is nicolaj's performance accurate so this person said my opinion is no for several reasons End-stage addiction is isolation, psychosis, and you look like hell. The first reason is that when you are that bad off and on your way out from addiction, you are going to be alone most of the time. You have burned many of your bridges and no one wants to be around you. You are in a different world mentally and emotionally from others, and there is no way to relate. Also, you are too sick to make it to a job, so you don't see anyone there either. In short, you are isolated. Nicholas Cage had a beautiful woman falling for him and trying to save him. When you're that bad off, no woman is going to want you. Also, you hallucinate and act psychotic after a while. Another thing is that you will likely have a quick temper, which people don't like. Another reason that it's not like real life is that Nicholas Cage could act the part, but he didn't look the part. If you take the booze out of the scenes, he looks healthy. Drunks in their last legs look bad and disheveled. And let's not forget, they often don't bathe or change their clothes. Booze comes out for your pores. 
even if you brush your teeth and chew gum, you still have a distinct odor. What I love about this comment is that this guy is proving his own point wrong because everything he says in here is what Nicolas Cage does in the movie. He looks absolutely terrible. The makeup they put on him, his eyes are red ringed. He looks totally disheveled and crazy. He has burned all of his bridges. He lost his job. It's like, oh, he had a beautiful woman saving him. That's the irony of the movie. That's like the whole point is that no woman would want to be around him <laughs> except for a hooker. Um, and also you hallucinate and act psychotic and have temper tantrums. All things we see in the movie. So this guy's like, no, uh, this is not an accurate portrayal because he doesn't do all the things. And then he, but the thing he misses is that Nicolas Cage does do all the things. So this comment led me to believe that it actually is a very accurate portrayal of alcoholism okay, um, okay. in the movie. So I got another one for you that I want well, you to read. Well, before you go on to that, like, I will say one thing I think is accurate about this critique is that Nicolas Cage, he's got too much meat on him at this mm. stage in alcoholism. I've seen alcoholics look late in their lives. They look like zombies. They look like a skeleton that is barely being held up. And when they're at like the, the scene where they're at the pool was really where the facade is lifted a little bit because Nick Cage is looking like a, a kind of like a Hollywood celebrity would look when their shirt is off. You know, he's not necessarily Chris Hemsworth over here, right. but he's still, he's got muscle definition on his pecs. He's not got a big old gut or too skinny, right? Yeah. He's, yeah. he's got a decent physique and yeah, that's just not realistic, but I, honestly, that's that's, that's a like point. a nitpick. I, honestly, like if he was, I think the Christian Bale version of this movie would look <laughs> a lot different. Definitely. But that's so funny. <laughs> there's plenty that Nick Cage brings to this role that I think does accurately portrayal. No, that's a good point because alcoholism do, does do weird things to your stomach. Like, oh you, yeah. I mean, did you see Nicolas Cage eat at all in this movie? Right. Right. No, exactly. He ate an ice cube. <laughs> that's it. All right, I got another one for you. I want you to read. No, not even close. Addiction is fraught with denial. Addicts don't commit suicide. Drugs are the ultimate antidepressant, and alcohol happens to be legal. They have the dopamine curve of a toddler. Also, hookers don't fall in love with drunks. The drunks get drunk and beat the snot out of hookers who also do drugs and not generally good people. They also don't cry when they get raped. That movie is part of America's endless romanticization of mental illness, drugs, and crime. It should be banned. <laughs> For example, <laughs> any random criminal could emulate either of those characters and use them to gain access to people and things they wouldn't otherwise have access to. <laughs> Who wrote this? <laughs> Some anonymous guy on Cura. <laughs> Uh, kind of a bit of a self-report here when he says drunks get drunk and beat the snot out of hookers who also do drugs. Um, just uh, wanted to highlight just how, you know, this right. is what you're getting on the internet, basically. Right, right, of course. Random takes. So. Because all drunks are literally exactly the same. Right. Which is, this is true about all hookers as well. Right. I mean, we should say, you know, sex work is real work, but this is... Uh, you know, <laughs> this movie is not very nice to Elizabeth Shue or her profession, I feel like. I think there is, um, I think equating her circumstances to uh, Nicolas Cage's violent end is, uh, n you know, not exactly charitable. 
not um, fair in, in any way. Right. I, yeah. I don't, I don't think that's the case uh, at all. I, um, <laughs> yeah, that just shows you where we're at in, or like at least where I'm at, because when we first are introduced to Elizabeth Shue's character, like I'm taking notes and it's like, okay, Yuri is some guy and he introduces like this party of people to Sarah, who is a sex worker. Right. <laughs> 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 exactly. So... Yeah, I mean, and she seems like she's good at what she does. So, you know, all, more power to her. And she's successful. She, like, has that nice apartment, you know, and makes tons of money and stuff. So, I mean, it's a dangerous job. She's certainly job. doing better than Ben Sanderson. It's true. Very true. Okay, so this is... So, Nick Cage did a bunch of research about alcoholism. And I'm going to read an excerpt from uh, the interview that he had with Ebert, um, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, Cage says... I drink socially with my friends. Having a glass of wine at dinner is not a problem. It blew my mind that people who drink too much over long periods of time can actually develop hallucinations, go into delirium tremens. I tried to get my hands on videotape of this happening. I recall seeing heroin withdrawals on film, but for some reason, it's very difficult to get alcohol withdrawals on film. And so I had to use my imagination of what that must feel like. I spoke to many drunks. I spoke with people who are running programs for this problem, and what I could gather was the stomach shrinks and contracts like a fist, and the alcohol is like this injection that goes into the body and relaxes the stomach. So the performance really largely came from the stomach for me. And I watched four movies to get an idea of great alcoholic performances. I saw The Lost Weekend with Ray Millard, Days of Wine and Roses with Jack Lemmon, Dudley Moore in Arthur, and Albert Finney in Under the Volcano. They were all great, but the Albert Finney one struck a chord of reality, and I wondered, what about this is different? I asked Figgis, who, because he had worked with Finney, was he really drinking? And Mike called Finney, and he said, no, it, I wasn't. It would have been impossible to do that because of the way the schedule is changing, and you have to get there and show up for work, and it just wouldn't be possible to take a gamble like that. Ebert says, well, you couldn't really control your acting if you were drinking. And Cage says, right, that would be an example of method acting going too far. Um, I thought this was very interesting. I love the idea of him doing this research and like finding out what it's like to be drunk. I think you found something about him actually drinking, right? Yeah, yeah. He went on like a two-week bender to get experience in, in like Dublin. He went <laughs> on a two-week bender and had a friend of his film him while he was plastered wow. so that he could study it and get, get a, like a feel for his own drunk mannerisms. Which is interesting. I wonder what Nick Cage, normal Nick Cage is like when he's drunk because he's such a wacky actor. Right, um, yeah. And what fun that must have been to consider sure. that to be work. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. It's just interesting what like what actors do to get in kind of the mindset of this. this. The filming for this was also very short. It was only like four weeks, I think, 28 days, they said. So he... Um, and that was like good for Nick Cage's mental health because he said he did not like being in a in the mental headspace of someone who wants to die. Um, so I think this I think it's really interesting, and I like that he went through the kind of he just didn't say, "Oh, I know what it's like to be drunk." He's like, "How is this different? You know, how is this? This is a different stage of existing, really. How do I capture that?" Um, and I think he did a really good job looking at like symptoms of alcohol withdrawal, and there's all these like. Um, like rehab centers that have tiny articles about leaving Las Vegas and about like, Hey, we watched leaving Las Vegas and yeah, it's just like this. <laughs> so, um, like the alcohol shakes, the lack of appetite, the crazy mannerisms and, you know, mood swing swings and uh, all that stuff is, uh, all accurate. And 
the more time, if the more alcohol you consume, the more addicted you are to alcohol, and then you stop and go through withdrawals, the worse your symptoms are. Like the first six hours, it's like you get tremors, you know, like you start vomiting and stuff. And then you start like after 12 or 24 hours, you start having hallucinations. You start like your brain stops working. It's crazy. Like the longer you go without it, the like you just get worse and worse and worse, which is not really what you expect from something like that. But I guess that's how withdrawal works. So it's a uh, it's a terrifying and extremely painful way for someone to to die. Um, and the fact that he chooses it is very much like a I want to light myself on fire type thing, where it's like I want to experience as much pain as possible, uh, even though you think of drinking yourself to death as being a somewhat pleasurable experience. You know, you might say, oh, well, at least I'll be drunk, which is something that people generally like. Uh, not really the case when you're going to, to at this at this thing. The other thing that's weird about alcoholism and you know drinking to excess is that it can kill you over the matter of decades you know he does it over the course of a couple of weeks which again people on cure i thought was unrealistic because nor like this isn't always how people who are addicted to alcohol act right those people aren't necessarily suicidal but you can kill yourself with alcohol in a single night if you drink enough right but, right but like um, he, he kind of spreads it out a little bit, which may be, you know, logistically maybe it might be easier. Um, but the thing is like, you can be an alcoholic for years and years and years and eventually succumb to kidney failure. Um, and, uh, it, that's like similar. So it's just a, it's just an interesting poison that we consume, you know, where it really can be extremely potent, but also like, can't, you can safely consume it or consume it and still be alive for a long time. Yeah, I um, the way that he was drinking that whiskey in the strip club at the beginning had me convinced this man was capable of killing himself with alcohol at exactly whatever rate he wanted. (laughs) Yes, no, it was really intense. That was, and that was such an interesting sequence. I'm not just saying that because there were like death thus out. Like it was, (laughs) I don't know, it was really intense. Like I really like got uncomfortable seeing him like almost uncontrollably down that entire bottle and that's something that you also present that scene are jump cuts which is not something you see very often in real films you know it's something reserved for youtube video essays really <laughs> but it's it has the jarring uh perspective of losing time you know where it's like he's not really there in the moment and so things are just kind of skipping um it is it's pretty powerful uh once you realize it's happening, uh, pretty cool stuff. I just wonder like what it's like to consume that much liquid. You know, I have trouble like, I mean, I can drink a lot of water, I guess, but like all at once, like I can't even, I can't even do that, man. If I drink too much water, I got to go to the bathroom like immediately. Yeah. That's like my biggest hang up about, about, uh, like binge drinking like this is like, oh man, that many trips to the bathroom pass. (laughs) Yeah. That was the thing. (laughs) The most unrealistic thing about this movie is you never see him pee. (laughs) uh yeah or or wet himself honestly that would have been more realistic um i'm trying to remember does he when he's passed out in front of the gate he hasn't wet himself there where he's like passed out i don't know maybe he did i I don't remember a specific scene where that would have been a good time to have that be the case because he's a mess with a suitcase full of liquor (laughs) liquor he leaves all his clothes behind Okay, ready to move on to our quotable moments? Yes, and we've got a pair of quotes that are uh, somewhat similar, so we'll play them back to back. I don't remember if I started 
drinking because my wife left me or my wife left me because I started drinking. But fuck it anyway. And then the other one, which I will play right now. Are you saying that your drinking is a way to kill yourself? Or killing myself is a way to drink. There are a couple of these, and you even engaged one earlier in this episode. Uh, what was it? That uh, Nick Cage was made for this role, or maybe this role was made for Nick Cage. <laughs> um, they're like these little poetic uh, reversals. I'm sure they have a name or something. Right, uh, right. Yeah, the one where he says, I started drinking because my wife left me, or, or maybe my wife left me because I started drinking, is probably the most famous one. But my, my personal favorite is the other one where he says, uh, you are saying that drinking is a way to kill yourself, and, she, and he says, no, uh, or killing yourself is a way to drink, uh, <laughs> which I think is pretty clever. <laughs> he has a few witty things that spill out no, of his mouth No, he definitely has a lot movie. of witty things. I mean, wasn't he a screenwriter? He was at yeah. least like an editor or something. So yeah. he was some sort of, you know, he had a way with words, for, uh, certainly. But, uh, well, I, I think the, the first quote for me is really about not giving him an out for like his responsibility yeah. in this movie it's uh because in the movie they kind of make it ambiguous it's like oh but maybe his wife was just heartless and she broke his heart and then this is just downstream from that but no it, 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 he started drinking and that's why she left that's what the book the source material says mm. and i think that that fits a lot better with the overall feeling we get from this movie um we're not here to forgive ben or feel bad for ben on his way to the grave you know this is his own doing and before the quote the other quote he uh, sarah's interviewing him asking him what you know, why he's drinking and he says he doesn't remember maybe he just doesn't want to tell her but honestly it's not even important to us the audience the important thing is that he's on a mission to die and um we're just along for the ride again like you said earlier there's nothing we can do to pause to stop it or pause it or anything um yeah i, I don't think that his wife leaving him is really an excuse for him to do this either honestly i mean uh like even if that was the case that he his wife left him and he started drinking, it wouldn't be excusable to me about like like that that reaction is not warranted. I don't think. Sure. You know? So I think that either way, either way you spin it, it doesn't matter. And also, like he's still ultimately responsible for what he's about to do. He's he's doing it to himself. So totally, I totally agree, and I think that's important for his character that it's it's all him, right? Uh, that that's doing this. That's all I got. Okay. I think that concludes our conversation on leaving Las Vegas. As we do at the end of every episode of Affable Chat, we will now deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to leaving Las Vegas? Hopefully this will make sense. A deep, endless dive into the hole you're in. Okay, so I know that that's the thing that it says at the motel. Yes. But the, I don't the, know what that means. Well, like the, the, the hotels, the motel is called the whole year in, and then he hallucinates that it says, the whole you're in. Ah. So I was making a joke about <laughs> how he's like going deeper into a hole. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. No, no, I get it. The get joke it. is better when I explain it, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> now, oh. <laughs> oh yeah, just cut it together so it makes it sound like I'm funny. <laughs> um, I give this movie sunglasses and Advil to nurse the hangover of a lifetime. Uh, I thought for sure you were going to say something about like uh, one more bottle or something. So I was trying to get away from the drinking metaphors. But. No, I, the last thing I want to do is drink after watching <laughs> this movie. Please keep it away. 
But uh, I'm glad we watched this movie. This movie is like, uh, I don't know if it's a cult classic or, or what ranking it is, but it's a decently well-known movie in this, the um, acting, it's, uh, everything about it. It's just so unique. And I, I really enjoyed being able to talk about it with you. It's not, you know, we're not really Oscar Andes or anything, but it did win a lot of Academy Awards, was nominated for a lot of awards. Roger Ebert ranked it as his best film of 1995. Um, and Nick Cage and Elizabeth Shue is this, like his best best performances of the year, and he even put it as his like number eight for the decade. I think um, one of his favorite movies as well. So it was I I I agree. It was surprising, and unlike Unforgiven, I don't feel sad that I watched it. You know, after <laughs> after we watched like there's a couple of movies like that. I think we've watched where afterward I'm just like depressed. I'm like movies suck. Everything sucks. I don't want to do anything. This this movie didn't make me feel that way. It it felt like an exploration, and it felt it gave me a lot to reflect on, a lot to think about. But ultimately, I I left it satisfied. And you know, I think for anyone who wants to get into film and understand like how a film can be told, like a story can be told through film in a really creative way, I think this is an excellent example of that. Right, and I think that in a lot of ways, because of how frequently we decide to review movies, we've we've reviewed video games, we've reviewed uh, TV shows, but mostly we review movies, and um, because of that, I feel a certain attachment to the medium, and this movie feels like it was meant for this medium, and Absolutely. I, I can really appreciate that, so... Okay, well, Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Oh, I'm so excited to announce. We are doing another series. This time it's featuring Florence Pugh. Or Pugh? <laughs> Maybe we should know. <laughs> Is it Florence Pugh or Florence Pugh? Oh, it's definitely Florence Pugh. Florence like, Pugh. Like the sound that Star Wars Pugh, games Pugh. make. Pugh, Yes. Anyway, okay. Our series is on Florence Pugh, and the very first one we're doing is Fighting With My Family. We're going to do four movies featuring this uh lovely lady and uh as like in her like supporting or lead roles um and it's gonna be very exciting so yeah yeah we're gonna kind of tread the path on her rise to prominence yeah uh because she's been in some pretty notable films since she became uh you know she entered the mainstream and uh, we're gonna find out exactly what makes her such a special uh, actor so i i am also really excited that we're announcing that and i look forward to discussing those films with you joey uh but in the meantime you can subscribe to us on spotify itunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you like this episode then tell a friend about it all you have to say is have you considered listening to affable chat you can reach us on twitter instagram and tiktok at affable chat or send us an email affable chat at gmail.com we also have a YouTube channel that has YouTube videos on it where you can watch us. Yes, just search Affable Chat on YouTube because we're the only one. That's right. Affable Chat is live on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern time. That's twitch.tv slash Affable Chat. Come hang out with us on Tuesday nights. Uh, but that's going to do it for this episode. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. Ben. Benny Goodman, that's me, and I think you're sexy. That's right, you are sexy. Look at those eyes. Meow sexy like a kitty cat. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>